0: Hello, welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Today's episode will discuss the political economy of Corona Hysteria. We are going to be discussing the uh, economics of the damage that has been done uh, over the last year as a result of this pandemic and the reaction to it. And I'm also going to be discussing my personal experience having experienced this uh, illness myself over the past couple of weeks and survived it with very minimal uh, damage or uh, disturbance to my life. And I think um, we're going to, I'm going to try and contrast between the personal approach of individual approach of trying to uh, (laughs) achieve health between the individual approach of uh, health, of individual approach to health, and the collective public health approach, uh, which has been the dominant reaction all over the world for this uh, pandemic, are around the world, in that there has been an enormous increase in the focus on public health measures in order to stop the spread of the disease, and a focus on epidemiology as a way of understanding the disease rather than a focus on individual health. And I think this contrast is quite instructive. And also, later in uh, the discussion, we're going to be joined again by uh, Philip Bagus, who joined us in the last seminar where we discussed deflation. Uh, Just the day after that seminar, um, he published a paper with a couple of co-authors on the political economy of mass hysteria. And I thought that paper was extremely interesting as a perspective on the economics uh, and the economic incentives that shape political behavior and political responses to to a a health emergency like this. So we're going to hear from Philip a little bit later. But first, I think I should start with uh, my personal uh, experience with uh, the disease. I got it a couple of weeks ago. I was pretty tired for a few days but really the net effect that i would say it had on me is that it led to a around a 20-30% increase in sleep for about 3-4 days and a 20 to 30% decline in productivity basically that was the result of it i was tired i was um not feeling too well i slept a lot Um, but I got over it pretty quickly and returned to normal in about uh, a total of a week to 10 days probably was when I was um, back to normal. So I think in retrospect, um, looking back at it, It's absolutely astonishing to think that the entire world has been disrupted massively and millions and maybe billions of people around the world have had their livelihoods ruined in many ways because of an illness that has effectively uh, been like a um, just a bad illness over a couple of weeks that was really not uh, something so... uh, drastic or so harmful to me. I think overall, the health impact of the disease, having had it myself and having seen several people who had it, and having read a lot of studies about this topic, it seems quite clear that the impact of the illness on people is largely a function of their of their health and their immune system and their metabolic health. And so there are a lot of studies that show enormous and very high correlation between uh, metabolic health and and the effects of this disease. And so we see this over and over and over again in many different kinds of statistics. And there's a whole bunch of articles that we could uh, share. And I'm going to be sharing one right now on the screen. The studies that have been done in uh, um, New York and in um, in China, several studies have found the, and, and there was always a substantially increased risk of ICU admission, of serious complications and of death in people who had um, essentially obesity and um age of course was the other factor but obesity was uh, a very important one in new york it was very clear that uh, from the data there that the it, it was the biggest risk factor in coronavirus hospitalizations after age from italy data as well from italy and this was uh, uh this was pretty obvious early on Also, there was a very strong correlation between obesity and um, the deadliness of the outcome. And this is, I think, enormously interesting because it's pretty clear that the individual decisions that an individual takes for their own health, in terms of being able to take care of their own health, is arguably much more important than uh, any other factor that affects them. In other words, you could catch a virus, you could wear a mask, you could not catch a virus, not wear a mask, you could go out, stay home. All of these things are in the long run far less effective, far less influential in terms of health outcomes than metabolic health and um, individual health and that's really ultimately the factor that is determined by personal diet and i've seen with many people i know my own brother had it and another couple of carnivores carnivores and people who eat predominantly low carb and ketogenic diets they've had it and it was largely the same kind of experience it ranged from mild to a little bit annoying but you don't hear about serious complications with people who were uh, metabolically healthy it's extremely 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 rare uh, largely the uh, you know the, the serious complications happen to people who have serious medical conditions as well and so in this regard it's absolutely astonishing when you think about the fact that from a year n- until now the public health measures that have been taken around this issue none of them has had anything to say almost about uh, metabolic health and about diet, which is enormously important as an outcome and enormously important as a determinant of personal uh, health and uh, the strength of the immune system. This has been something that has been completely ignored. And, um, of course, it's, it's very much worth uh, thinking about why this is the case. And I think, as an economist, you can see why it would uh, not be something that would be popular to so something you wouldn't expect uh, for public health agencies to bring about because ultimately if you think about health, uh, about public health agencies, in terms of them being agencies made out of people who are self-interested, like all people, then you can see how their mission and their work and their, their careers and their livelihoods will benefit immensely from Um, certain kinds of decisions at the expense of others. They'll benefit from things that benefit them individually in their positions rather than benefit the health of the individual. Whereas when an individual is trying to take decisions for themselves, they are highly incentivized to think about their own health and about how to really improve the outcome for themselves. So uh, this experience has really made me sit down and think about just how would we have, I think this is really the thought experiment that I wanted to address today and which Philip's paper offers us a question, uh, a good way of, of addressing. How would a world of health anarchy Have function. You know, imagine if we didn't have a public health government. Essentially, if we had an anarchy of public health, where you know the World Health Organization's through some some reason or another had gone out of business, or if all these public health organizations around the world and all the ministries and all essentially all state medicine, if all of that had not existed, you know, if we had a complete separation of state and medicine. How would an anarchic society um, have dealt with something like an epidemic like this? If you get rid of these central planning agencies, what would we expect? And so here, you know, the argument for these agencies, I, as an economist, you know, and as an Austrian who's uh, highly influenced by Mises uh, and his discussion of um, socialist calculation and um, if you take if you've taken uh, my courses, you'll uh, remember the discussion of socialist calculation in Economics Eleven and Economics Twelve. It's a central topic in, particularly in Economics Twelve. So I highly urge you to take that course uh, on my website and. Um, understand the the Misesian perspective on why socialism and central planning fails, which is ultimately about uh, property rights and calculation and economic calculation. So from the Misesian and Austrian perspective, you would not expect a central planning agency for potatoes to work or a central planning body for any market to work. But would you expect something like that to happen to work in a central uh, planned, centrally planned economy? And I think um, we can see we can see the case for why it would not be uh, why it would not be a problem for a society not to have this. Why, in fact, actually, I think an anarchy would uh, you know a health anarchy would have resulted in a much better outcome. Ultimately, I think um, you know if you look at what the World Health Organization says about its diet prescriptions, I think you get at initially you know why not having them would have been a much better a much better starting point for us to handle this entire epidemic from day one. You know, if they had not spent the last several decades telling the world about. The joys of industrial food and the joys of massively monocropped, mono, monoculture, agriculture, industrial crops, about the dangers of meat and the dangers of high fat food and about the benefits of industrialized hydrogenated oil. You know, if you take that out, if you take out all... And, and it's not just, of course, the World Health Organization. It's also, you know, ministries of health all over the world have been promoting this stuff. And they've been promoting the whole um, balanced diet, which involves six to 10 rations of grain of grain a day. If you take that out, then... And, and if you take out, you know, of course, the uh, enormous amounts of subsidies that are given to producers of these crops, then, you know, initially... You're you're immediately off to a much better uh, a much better start in this regard. Just the fact that the world has not, if the world had not had all of this industrial junk shoved down its throat over the past few decades, we'd all have been in far better metabolic health today, and we'd all uh, be able to handle this much better. So this is, I think, the first uh, way to think about it. And then the the second way to think about it is that. When these organizations start to explain the problems in terms of epidemiology on a population level, then it actually promotes the wrong kind of approaches. If you think, if you realize that individual health is really important toward how you approach this illness, then you would want people to be taking care of their own individual health. And when you run epidemiological studies, and these epidemiological studies are um, essentially, looking at society and pretending, or or trying to imagine that you are that, that you can understand how things work in terms of disease, just purely by running numbers, then you know all of your approaches are going to be uh, public health focused rather than individual health focused, and so we see how you know over the last year or so. We've had all of these people, all all of these public health agencies promote all all, all of these public health interventions with almost zero focus on health, zero focus on eating properly, zero focus on getting good movement, having, you know, good health for yourself. And that's, of course, understandable because, you know, human beings and their decisions don't factor into these macroeconomic aggregate models. These are like the central planning models of uh, socialist economists. economists. This is like what Mises discusses. This is what Hayek also discusses. This is, you look at at a society and you look at aggregates and you assume that the aggregates themselves are the causal forces of nature that move society around. And you see this also in in all manner of economic central planning that takes place today. Of course, central banking is one of them. And you know we if you 've taken my courses you 'll you 'll see a very thorough critique based on the Austrian approach and I see no reason why this critique can 't also apply to epidemiology and i think it's, it it also applies to the pseudoscience of epidemiology, which is exactly like macroeconomics because it pretends that the causal forces in society are these uh, are just these aggregates across population rather than um, individual decision making. So immediately, you know, the focus all over the world has been toward public health solutions rather than individual solutions. And so these, of course, are much more conducive to the mental models of people in public health agencies, central planners of health, and also more conducive to their own self-advancement. You know, if you're the one who's being, um, you know, if you're the one who's being able to decide which businesses can operate and which don't operate, it gives you an enormous amount of power in society. And so a lot of people are going to jump on these issues and try and emphasize them. And so what you get then is the central planning of these decisions, which is highly uh, ineffective because central planning fails because it does not involve individuals making their own decisions with their own property and the individuals who own the property are the only ones who can perform economic calculation to allow them to make that decision. And I see no reason why we can't also apply the socialist calculation problem to human bodies. So you are the one who is able to perform economic calculation best on your capital. You're also the one who's able to perform health calculation best on your Body. That's why humans own themselves. Well, that's not why humans own themselves, but the fact that humans own themselves is an essential part of understanding economics in the Austrian tradition because um, humans are scarce. And so somebody has to own a human being. It's either they're going to own themselves or others are going to own them. And so your own body, if you don't have sovereignty over it, you don't control it, you don't own it, you can't perform health risk economic calculation, you can't figure out what are the best things for you. Instead, you follow these top-down rules for risk-making, which are effectively imposed from people and by people who are protected from the consequences of these decisions and from people who don't have the economic capital, who don't have the knowledge about the uses of this economic capital or of the individual or of their body and their health. And so... For me, you know, I think an excellent way of thinking about it is that when when you do a lockdown and then you decide, you know, some people who work in essential industries, because these are essential industries, they still need to work. Well, some of those people who work in essential industries are at a lot of risk. And so you're just forcing them to get out and meet with everybody, say delivery drivers or uh, grocery store workers or um, people who work in uh, any kind of industry that's deemed essential if the decision comes up from above that they have to work because their industry is essential, well, they end up interacting with more and more people and they end up being much more likely to contract the virus. Whereas if if, if it was an individual decision, many of those people would decide to stay home, take time off from work, to have somebody else fill in for work for them. And you would naturally end up getting an ar- arrangement where people who feel that they are able to take the risk, that they can take the risk, that they need the work, they would be the ones who are more likely to be going out and working. Whereas the people who don't would stay home regardless industry is uh, more uh, essential, you know, because then the essential people who are at low risk in the essential industry will work. And then others say from who are low risk from other industries might move to that one. These sort of things would happen in a free market if people had the freedom to make their own decisions. Ultimately, in a free market and in, a, in, in, in an anarchist system, in a, in a health anarchy system, what would happen is that individuals are free to make their own decisions with their own bodies and with their own, with their own economic decisions. And so they can make their best estimation of what works best for them. So if you look at all the many people whose livelihoods have been destroyed over the last year, many of them are pretty healthy people and they can, um, you know, they can take the illness and survive it and carry on. And so these many of these people, you know, would have been happy to get on with their lives normally, because the risk of staying home, you know, in terms of financial uh, destitution, losing your job, losing your home, the risk of uh, losing your using your income and livelihood can actually be a far bigger risk for a lot of people than catching this virus. And I think The majority of young people and the majority of young people, particularly people who are in good metabolic health, have very little risk of suffering serious consequences from this virus, whereas these are the people whose entire lives and their future could get destroyed, you know, the 30 year old entrepreneur, who's been working on a business for 10 years. He could just have that entire thing wiped out because of a risk that is very low for them. So if you had a society that where people can take these decisions on their own, you would see that vulnerable people would choose to isolate and, you know, they would choose to stay in places and, and it becomes much easier for you to isolate if you are high risk in a society where people can voluntarily isolate and voluntarily choose to continue to work because, Now, all the young people are working and they're out there. They can do all the things that you want for you. You know, they can get things delivered for you. You can stay home, you can lock yourself at home and they can get the groceries and you can keep the groceries and put whatever uh, procedures you want to make you feel comfortable about them. But that's doable for you. A a very high degree of isolation is achievable if the rest of society can function because then the rest of society can uh, contribute. On the other hand, When you centrally plan the health outcome, when you force it on people, then you're forcing people who are at high risk to continue to work and you're forcing people who are at low risk to stay home and suffer the economic consequences of it. So this is one aspect of how I think a... a, a free society would handle this as opposed to a place where you have all these um, public health dictatorships, which is what the world is becoming right now. Instead of epidemiology, we'd have um, you know people looking at the individual health aspects and trying to minimize their own risk. And I think another very important um, development would be in terms of drugs. I think it's, uh, you know, in a, in a free society, what would happen is anybody has, uh, anybody who starts witnessing good results with a drug would publicize it. And then you'd see a growing amount of people who are adopting this and you would see it become more and more widespread. And we saw something like this happen with uh, two drugs over the last year, hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin in particular, the two ones that I've read the most about, particularly hydroxychloroquine. And I have to say, when I got sick, I I took uh, hydroxychloroquine and I immediately felt an improvement. I took it, I started taking it on like the second or third day when, in which I was feeling sick and uh, that's when really things changed. I, I genuinely felt that it changed um, and, and made things much easier. Uh, and I think the evidence for this drug has been absolutely overwhelming. The amount of evidence that has been shown, and recently we saw some studies that looked at the rates of um, coronavirus infection among countries where uh, this was considered a standard of treatment versus places where it wasn't. And there's an enormous difference. There's an enormous difference in outcomes. And it's just uh, another one of these many, many, many data points of, uh, you know, you hear them individually and you hear doctors talking about this from all over the world. And you see these comparative studies. And then, of course, you may remember we had earlier in one of the earlier podcast uh, seminars we had here, we had Dr. James uh, Todaro, who came and spoke to us about uh, his work on this. You know, he worked on this and he um, publicized some of these studies. It was... uh, massively suppressed by the media and eventually um, there was also a study released in the Lancet journal that pretended to have data from all over the world about the use of hydroxychloroquine and found that it was harmful and that study was retracted when the authors basically admitted that they couldn't submit their own um, their own, uh, that they couldn't submit their data. They had no data. Effectively, it was clear they essentially admitted that the data was fabricated. They couldn't present the source of the data and the study was withdrawn. You know, when people think about what public health, you know, why we need public health authorities and why we need public health central planning and why we need public health measures, they don't think of this as being what public health authorities do. But this is exactly what they did now, because the economic interests don't economic interests of these organizations and their sponsors are not served by cheap, effective drugs that can 't be patented. This is an old drug that is already whose patent is expired, and so nobody can make money off of this drug it 's dirt cheap. You buy it anywhere in the world, over the counter for three dollars, five dollars, or ten dollars, or something like that. It's essentially nothing. If it was, and it's it's something that's been tried all over the world for many decades. It's an old drug, and it's been used as a preventative for malaria. Um, so it, we've got enormous amount of study on its safety. And its secondary effects. So it's it's not it's it's not a harmful drug for people to be taking preventatively. It's not a dangerous drug by any stretch of the imagination. The only thing dangerous about it is that it's not um, it doesn't have a patent. So it's dangerous for profitability because any any drug company can make this. The, the formula is open source. Anybody can make the formula, and they can sell it for very cheap. And so therefore, it's an effective and it's a cheap drug. And I think, you know, the amount of evidence about it um, is overwhelming in terms of how it's working. And yet, since uh, March last year, Facebook and the World Health Organization and the major mainstream media and Twitter and um, all kinds of social media and YouTube, of course, have been taking down videos and posts uh, mentioning this drug. On the other hand, if we had an anarchy, if we had an, a, an economic system you know, or a health system where there was no central authority that gets to decide uh, what people need to do, if you had that kind of world, there would be no authority to go around and ban doctors from talking, talking about this drug. So we, we get so many people talking about it all over all the world, even more and more people try it, and we start seeing more and more benefits. And if you think about just how much, how much concerted effort went into not promoting this drug versus how much effort goes into promoting other measures which involve much more money and power for these organizations – You can see why this heads in that way in that there's more money for these organizations and their sponsors from expensive interventions. There's not an incentive. There's no champion in the organization that's going to push for a cheap drug. There's no lobby that's going to push for, tell people to eat meat and exercise and get sunshine. But, if we didn't have these organizations and we just had uh, doctors on the internet, doctors on the internet will get on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and will post videos and they'll try things and they'll weigh the evidence and they'll weigh the the risks. You know, should we give this drug or should we give that drug? And what are the downsides of taking of somebody to, who's beginning to show symptoms to take this drug? And I think this is really the key thing in countries where this is, uh, this drug has been administered as an early treatment. It prevents serious complications from taking place whereas in places where they don't administer the serious complications take place people get taken to hospitals and then um, you know bad things happen so it's an early form of prevention that is very cheap so there's not a lot of money to be made from it and in 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 a centrally planned economy this kind, of, um, this kind of intervention doesn't really benefit anybody. So in a centrally planned health system, this doesn't really benefit. And so we don't see much, much benefit for it, but we see a lot of benefits. Uh, we, we, we see a lot of lobbying and pushing and imposing of things like lockdowns and mandates on taking uh, vaccines and telling people who can leave their home and who can't and, all these ways of centrally planning the health response of individuals that don't really optimize for the uh, wellness well-being of the individual in my mind and i think philip has just joined us right now yeah actually before we get to that daniel just posted something saying um, hydroxychloroquine was approved for medical use in the united states in 1955 it is on the world health organization's list of essential medicine in 2017 is what it was the 128th most commonly prescribed medication in the United States with more than 5 million prescriptions. So this is a well-known drug that people have been using for many years, but there's not a strong incentive for, for utilizing it in this kind of centrally planned collective approach to health. And so Philip is going to fill us in on um, his idea of the political economy of hysteria. How are you doing, Philip? Philip? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on SafeAdeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots 12 hours apart to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. With an ice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now.
1: I am doing fine. Uh, thank you for, for letting me join you again. I just published a paper where I talk about the political economy of mass hysteria. And uh, mass hysteria normally is defined as. Um the illusion of a non-existing or highly exaggerated threat yeah that is wide, that becomes widely spread because anxiety basically is contagious yeah and uh this illusion of the threat is then then spread, and there's a mass hysteria, this threat is totally over exaggerated. This can happen, of course, in any society that uh, someone gets into a panic about a non existing threat, being medical or otherwise, and others see that and hear his story and get infected as well. Especially because we have something like a negativity bias in the human brain. This is because of the evolution that we focus on negative news. And we always focus on because there might be a threat, especially when we have. Uh, a time of like mass media and we get always these negative news and then social media we are connected 24 hours and we get negative news all the time and we focus on these and then we get into this anxiety state state, uh, state and uh, in this hyster- um, hysteria mood and in fact in some of this mass hysteria uh, people get actually symptoms even though There's no threat, yeah. Um, There are many case studies, mostly of school settings or factories that is localized settings. For example, of a factory in Singapore where um, a worker saw a bug, a strange bug, never seen before and then gets uh, symptoms of, yeah, skin is getting red and uh, breathing problems uh, stuff like this. And then it spreads to, 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 to all the workers of of the factory and later it's found out that the bug does not, did never exist. So, uh, and there are many, many cases that uh, show this, uh, that this actually is possible, that in a mass hysteria people get symptoms of something that does not exist. It's just, in it's just in the, in, in the brains, right? And most likely this is much more common than we think because there might not only the case that there is um, nothing like there no bug at all and people get thim- symptoms but they of course also that is the the, gr- the gray area where we have something like an epidemic but people get symptoms just because of their anxiety and because they imagine to have them. Yeah, it's. This is called also no, nocebo effect. That is the opposite of the placebo effect. In a placebo effect, you would take a pill, uh, it's like a neutral pill and then, then you get better because you think you get, will get better. With the nocebo effect is you think you will get ill and you get ill because you think you will, will get ill. Yeah. So um, there's this famous case of a guy who wanted to commit suicide. He was uh, taking part like in an experiment uh, of a new drug and he was thinking he was getting a new drug and he was taking 29 pills of this new drug to kill himself, but he was actually getting the placebo. So he was thinking he was killing himself and then he got, yeah, his, his heartbeat uh, uh, went to 200 something and his blood pressure went up. And then he, he was brought to the hospital, yeah, and they, they, they uh, hardly managed to stabilize him. And then the doctor came off the uh, experimental uh, study and said, well, you just you just took placebos, <laughs> and and then, and then he immediately got better when he uh, found out that he was just taking placebos. Yeah, so so this psychological effect also exists, and this mass hysteria, especially in the globalized world of social media and mass media, can occur. And then in the article, I um, I look if this becomes. More probable to occur with, with a state, with the existence of the state or a modern welfare state. Yeah. And then I look through, uh, into s- several uh, points why it's more likely for such a mass hysteria to develop in the case uh, of the existence of the, ex- existence of the welfare state. Yeah. Um, one factor, of course, is that when the welfare state exists, basically private property rights are not taken into account. They are not sacrosanct, they are easily violated. And imagine that a society gets into a mass hysteria and property rights are not 100% protected. Well, <laughs> like in the modern welfare state, well, the, then people who are full of this mass hysteria, they will destroy the whole society. For example, they will impose lockdowns. They will impose right. <laughs> masks. They will close down business. Close down businesses. This would not happen if there would be a free society or at least a minimum state where private property property rights would be protect, protected. Because they would they limit the harm of the irrationality that comes with the mass hysteria. Yeah, and uh, other factors influencing the mass hysteria hysteria are, of course, there are different mechanisms that reduce anxiety and stress, which are very important factors for mass hysteria to develop and to 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 grow. Yeah. This is sports, diversion, like do something else than thinking about the negative news, like meet meet with friends, get sunshine and so on. All all of these are factors that would reduce the mass hysteria. However, with the modern welfare state, exactly these measure, measures that can or, or mechanisms, let's say it's, they are mechanisms that would reduce the hysteria and their anxiety and the stress, they are they can be prohibited. And COVID-19 is another, again, is a prime example that they exactly prohibited those activities that would reduce the stress and the anxiety and could. Thereby reduce the hysteria and could prevent that the mass hysteria de- develops. Another factor is that to reduce the collective hysteria, it, it is good to see examples of people who who do it differently and it works, like experimentation, the um, the finding of of knowledge of new new ways to deal with the threat, be it be it ex- um, an illusionary threat, totally illusionary or just exaggerated. Yeah, with the state approach, it's always a centralized approach, yeah? And it's prohibited. Alternative ways to deal with the problem are prohibited. So for example, you cannot open your business. You must close it. You cannot walk around without uh, the, the the mask. You, you have to do it. So people who would like to experiment, they would say, well, I go, I open my business, I have my customers here and they don't have to wear masks and then, other people may, may observe, do they just die like flies? <laughs> yeah. And if they don't, if they don't. If these people who are experimenting with alternative ways, if they don't, then others may observe and may copy yeah. especially these borderline cases. The borderline cases in case of the, in, in the sense of a mass hysteria that uh, they are close to falling prey to this hysteria, but they observe, oh, people just behave normally and nothing happens. Oh, I will also do it. So the group then get of the hyster- hysteria gets smaller. However, if we have a centralized approach where everyone is doing the same, yeah, then a kind of groupthink develops. Yeah, and uh, alternative approaches are prohibited and even, even socially, um, yeah, they are socially... Uh, Looked bad on, on them. Yeah? Imagine we would have had a well, world state. Then we would not even had the example of Sweden. Yeah? So the so we need this um, decentralized uh, approach where we can have experiments and discover the knowledge in the Hayekian way, which is the best way to to deal with the threat because it may be highly exaggerated. Yeah? If if we can't if we can't do this if we can do not have this possibility of experimentation then it's much more likely that that the mass hysteria develops. Another factor that uh, contributes to um, mass hysteria is, of course, a politicized politicized mass media. Uh, With a minimum state, it does not exist because uh, he just looks for property rights. So in a free society, there's no politicized mass media. But if we have it, uh, like in our societies today, where media is influenced indirectly and directly by the state, controlled by it, or we are licensees or just we are people who went through state universities and now uh, controlling the mass media, if then the mass media collaborates with the state and sends negative messages all 24 hours, seven days a week, the probability that the mass hysteria occurs, grows exponentially. And if it occurs the intensity of the masses theory will be much stronger because psychologically it's it's the worst thing that can happen if you get twenty four hours negative news, then the anxiety and stress level yeah explodes related to this is the fact of this there has been also studies on this if we get negative information from an authoritative authoritative source yeah this is especially harmful for Uh, our stress, or especially stressful. So when something like Fauci says that there's a deadly virus, 10 times more deadly than the, the normal flu, this really threatens people and produces anxiety. In a free society, no Fauci would exist. I mean, he would exist, but he would not be given this platform. He would not be in Congress. Uh, and, and sending message, messages out of Congress. And then people think, oh, the state is res- responsible for public health, so so this must be true. This is a high authority. And therefore, uh, I really better put on the mask because he says so. Uh, this is another factor that makes it more likely for a mass hysteria to develop, uh, this
0: uh, state authority. A lot of falsies. But there would be a free market competition between them in that um, anybody can present their ideas. And people get proven through a track record of their ideas. And, you know, we wouldn't have these 30, 40 year government bureaucrats who have been, um, you know, in these jobs where they write their own uh, research grants and they write their own budgets and they give their own and they give themselves their own salaries. And essentially there is no market feedback on them. And you know this is this is uh, this is like an attack vector against the normal functioning of scientific society. When you think about how a free society would handle this, it would be you know everybody is free to say whatever they want, and uh, people are free to listen to whoever they want. And this kind of free marketplace of idea will produce when will come up with effective solutions. As we saw, a lot of doctors on the internet are where. Um, where we're prescribing from a year ago you know they were prescribing hydroxychloroquine and we see now that results continue to pile up and the evidence continues to pile up this is in fact an extremely effective treatment but uh, when you have a monopoly they can afford to be wrong and you know they don't face any consequences for it
1: yeah exactly i mean <clears throat> the i mean there's much scientific evidence uh uh, out there, that the lockdowns don't work have no have no no effect. Yeah, but if of course if society is in a mass hysteria, espe- and especially if the mass hysteria has also fallen on the politicians that is in the government, yeah, then the havoc her- 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 that can be brought to society is immense. I mean, if you if you think about it, if we believe that there is a possibility like a uh, mass hysteria that mass hysteria could be developed because of the negativity bias and so on. Having an institution like the state is very, very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous because imagine that the mass hysteria takes a hold on politicians, on the government itself. They will do measures that will do immense harm on the society. And this is exactly what I think has happened or is happening right now. Because, this, and now let me add the, the next factor, which is fear. Fear is used as a political factor. Yeah? Governments rest on fear, on fear, yeah? uh, they rest on the narrative that governments protect their population from threats, being foreign threats, or health threats, or poverty threats, whatever. Yeah? So. And this has been amp- studied uh, ample. And for example, with the se- terrorist threat, that there's a terrorist threat, and that uh, we have to invade Iraq and so on. Yeah. So the fear weapon is deliberately employed by governments. Yeah. Without the existence of the state, in the ne- uh, this would not happen. Yeah. But when the state exists, then this fear factor can be employed, and actually. Um, there has been a paper uh, leaked out from the German Ministry of the Interior uh, back in March 2020, where 20 or 10 experts actually recommend the government to instill fear in the population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And wow, where they have um, several methods. One was to emphasize that people would die from COVID through uh, breathing problems, which is like... A, a basic fear of humans of dying in this way, and it provokes a special, special anxiety. And fear should be installed also in children. Yeah, children themselves are not in danger, but then they might, in fact, if they play with other kids, they might infect their grandparents and they would die horribly at home. Yeah. So instill fear in children in this, way, in this way. How evil is this? And they actually are doing this. And the third third way was to emphasize possible future long term negative consequences of COVID. So that in the long run, long term, maybe you will suddenly die of something. So these experts recommended the government to do this. Yeah. So this uh, and this leaked out. So this is totally uh, um, yeah public
0: right now. Yeah? without 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 government who would scare the population really
1: yeah exactly exactly so um, we need a government.
0: Uh, checkmate anarchists checkmate anarchists this we we've just completely disproved anarchy as an ideology because without government you know nobody can scare the population yeah.
1: <laughs> and lastly there's the point that the cost of the wrong health decisions public health decisions can be passed with the state to third parties. Yeah. Um, The politicians have an have like an asymmetric asymmetrical payoff. If they underestimate a threat. Yeah. And if they say, no, it's not harmful. And then something threatful comes, then they will lose elections. But if they over, if they exaggerate the threat, they can always justify themselves, especially with with the propaganda machine they have. And, uh, they can pass on the cost of their wrong decisions on third parties. Yeah? The whole populations, the whole population, living standards and poverty. They, they, I mean, these bureaucrats, these politicians, they don't pay for the, they, they don't suffer the costs, especially if they have a safe salary like their state employees, <laughs> they, don't, they don't care. So the cost of their decisions can be passed on to third parties. Um, and, and therefore they have an incentive to exaggerate the threat. And this, of course, is very, um, yeah, it, it fosters the possibility and the development of a mass hysteria. So, for all these reasons, I conclude that a mass hysteria is much more likely to develop and to grow with the existence of a modern welfare state, with the big state. Yeah, And the possibility of it in a smaller state or a minimal state or an anarchy would not be there. And one would one has to investigate to which extent COVID-19 imply, implies a mass hysteria. I would think that a, a large part of it is a, is a mass hysteria, and this would never have happened in a free society.
0: I think so, too. And I think, you know, um, ultimately, the, the, we don't have a lot of experiments. You mentioned a very important point, which is that when you have a central authority making decisions for the entire planet, you don't get the benefit of people watching others experiment and deciding, you know, so maybe I shut down my business for the first couple of weeks and I stay home. I take it as my vacation and I'm staying home. And then I look around and I see, well, this guy, yeah, this business is doing fine or that town or that country, they're doing fine. And maybe I can take this risk, you know, or you see that these people are implementing this measure and it's working. these people, we don't get much of that, but we do get some, And my favorite comparison is Belarus, of course. I never tire of uh, whipping that dead horse. But Belarus has... It's now been an entire year, almost, when the president said, (laughs) drink vodka and go to the sauna. This is the best way to fight coronavirus. And in retrospect, there's really nothing to suggest that sauna and vodka has performed any better or worse than any of the other stupid voodoo that all these other countries have tried. I think... uh, Uh belarus like all other countries did witness a lot of people dying from respiratory diseases this year and it does have a certain amount of uh, people dying from covid but they are by no means the highest country in the world and they're just um, pretty much around the world average more or less they have people dying like everywhere and but the total number of people dying there is no different from what it was every year And the total mortality in Belarus and pretty much everywhere in the world at the end of the year is pretty much the same. So it's clear that, uh, you know, the the mortality impact of this, although it's, of course, tragic, uh, any death is tragic, but the mortality impact here is primarily among the people who would have been dying anyway. Otherwise, we would have seen many more deaths in places like belarus and sweden still at the end of the year sweden had as many deaths as it had in the previous years and belarus as well so the 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 people who were dying from this illness are likely to have died anyway from similar illness of course not everybody but you know um uh, is ultimately People die. Every year, somewhere between 0.5 and 1% of the population, depending on the age profile, will die. And that's just how it happens. Um, that's life. and We're all mortal, unfortunately. And it's, of course, tragic uh, when anybody dies. But the, the, the question that we have to ask ourselves individually, which we can ask ourselves individually because we have no choice but to be self-interested individually is, you know, what is the risk of me getting this disease and what are the risks of me staying home or for me not working or for my business going out? We can weigh those risks as individuals because we have to, because, you know, eventually we get hungry and we have to decide, all right, maybe I'll take this drug or maybe I'll take the vaccine or maybe I'll wear a mask and I'll go out. So when we're making those decisions as individuals, it's easy to make them, but, well, not easy, but we can make them as individuals. But the decision-making process is completely skewed in terms of its incentive when it's centralized, when it's imposed top down, because from that perspective, as a central planner, you know, your incentive is to always err on the on, on the fact of, on reacting more because every death is going to be uh, basically counted as if it is against you and it was against your choice. And so your incentive as a politician is to be completely irrational because all of the poverty deaths won't be blamed on you, but all of the, uh, hysteria, uh, all of the deaths that trigger the hysteria, that trigger the fear, that, that this very visceral feel, the fear that has been inculcated in people over the last year, nobody wants to be in charge, and so all of the deaths that are related to the to the illness itself become much more much more important, and so you see the politicians err on that side rather than let people take their own choices, and it's it's tragic
1: yeah it's tragic one point um i also make is that the fear of death of course is also uh, very important and their religion may also play a role yeah where the welfare state grows normally religion yeah goes down yeah Uh, if you don't believe in god then yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean if you believe in god you don't have to fear death so much yeah because you you believe in a in life after death, but if you believe that God does not exist or the state is God, yeah, many people believe now that the state is God. Yeah, there's a famous book of uh, <laughs> democracy, uh, the God yep. that failed. Yeah, so <clears throat> if you ever live, then then it be- because also becomes more likely that this fear takes hold of you and you you re- uh, react irrational, and this mass hysteria
0: spreads. Yeah? Absolutely, and I think you know it's um, it, it's it's it, what's 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 amazing is that uh, you know uh, I'm always getting called as a crazy health freak because I don't eat junk daily on a, uh, and I don't eat junk in general, and so people always think of me as being weird. You know, why don't you eat all the terrible junk that um, is making everybody sick? All the time you know it's you're being a weirdo by not eating that and <laughs> i mean it's it, it's uh, it's strange that these same people who think you're weird for not eating junk will also think you're weird for not wanting to shut down the world for a year in order to save people from death no like i am afraid of death by every day i wake up and you know i'd love to have cheesecake every day i used to love cheesecake um I, back in the terrible days but i stopped having it i haven't had it in a long long time why because i love being healthy much more i love not dying i love not having diabetes i not having not, i love not being obese um I, I i used to be much heavier than i am right now and i realized that eating cheesecake <laughs> is contributing to that so i have a simple choice to make you know Cheesecake every day or not cheesecake every day. I wake up every morning and I have to make that choice. And because I don't want to die, because I like life, I choose no cheesecake. I eat steak. I eat meat every day and I don't eat junk. And it helps me stay healthy. And of course, you know, you can't uh, cheat death forever, but you can try your best. But what's, what's, I think it's, it's, it's kind of like the, the, not to get too psychoanalytical here, but it is, it is overcompensation. It's like the, the, the father who's an absent father and then starts feeling guilty about it. And so then just goes and buys really expensive toys and thinks that compensates for uh, a lifetime of neglect. And it doesn't. Similarly, you know, you neglect your body for a lifetime and then there's a serious illness coming along. You freak out and you think, you know, all right, if we just shut down the planet, then all the cheesecakes don't matter anymore. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, it, it, you can't run away from the cheesecake. You can't make the world stop you from taking the cheesecake. You have to take the choice yourself. And it's, it's 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 um, what this episode has done is that it has taken health socialism to another level in, in people's minds. Like nobody thinks about their health as being something in their hands anymore. Nobody wants to diet. Well, not nobody, obviously, but... You know, in the last year, it's very common that people are talking about how you know um, it's the pandemic, and so of course we're having and dazs and chips and uh, cheesecake all day um, because we're at home, and so you know people just let go because it's an emergency, and so you don't have to take care. So it's it's this it's the same idea that it's it's a, we wait for the authorities to make the decisions to tell us whether we wear a mask, tell us if we can leave home tell us if we do this. And they they know how to take the right decisions and, you know, nothing we do matters anyway. And so it just becomes, it, it becomes like, uh, it, it, it's exactly like watching a society become more socialized than its economics in that it's instead of people working and instead of people being productive with their time, they're constantly thinking about or voting and getting the government uh, to elect people and um, uh, getting the government to hand over money and um, just engaging in politics rather than engaging in productive activity. Similarly, you know, people are engaging in uh, public health uh, as a spectator sport on their TV and as a public shaming mechanism where you harass and harangue people who are not on the same team by wearing the same number of masks that you are wearing (laughs) Um, it's the same thing, you know. You don't, it's no longer an individual thing. Your health is, is 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 a matter of public policy, and so you don't have to take care of it.
1: Yeah, it's almost like war. No? You you are you're fighting there against, uh, or the state is fighting for you, and you you get all every day you get get the informs from the front how many people were infected, how many soldiers, soldiers died, and the uh, the general saw. Um, that who supposedly who has all the expert power and knowledge needs, of course, all the power he has. I mean, this happened, it's what well called war socialism. Yeah, Mises, exactly. Mises warned against it. Um, it happened in the first world war in Germany, when uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they they uh, basically the emperor, the German emperor had no power anymore at the end of the war, but it was all with the military and the argument was, yeah, we need we need all, and they 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 made decisions on the production. Uh, so this was war socialism. They made all the decisions, and now they say it again. Oh, we need the experts. <laughs> they sometimes even say the science. No, even though the real science says the opposite, but uh, we need the experts to make the decisions. And therefore, some some like Fauci. On Germany Drosten, has to decide to lock down and we are all in this together in this war apparently even the, even at the home front yeah in the home front we are of course we have to lock down ourselves and not meet with other people to make suffer sacrifices so that the war against the virus can be war can be won and property rights yeah. and liberty do not you do not count anymore. yeah at the, at the end it, it's socialism at its best because, what you have to do is, or what they do is, they pretend that they can make interpersonal utility comparisons. They, they think that they can centrally plan uh, how many months of lives will be won through the, the measures through lockdowns for some people. But on the other hand, months of, of life will be lost for other people who don't get their uh, treatments or who get depressions and commit suicide or people in the third world who die because of the poverty that comes through the lockdowns. So they, they play like God and want to make a comparison and say, yeah, we will be better off doing the le- lo- lockdowns not taking into account the costs at all. And I, and I repeat the costs are psychological. Yeah, these are psychological utility. Yeah, I lose utility when I see someone with a mask on the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how can you compare this with the utility lost by some, by um, someone who dies earlier? It's impossible to compare. And then the question is, of course, how much should be spent on on this? How much of GDP should we sacrifice in order to get less deaths? Because we could also get less deaths if we would spend more of GDP uh, for public hospitals, for example. If we would, would spend 90% of GDP for public hospitals, probably some lives would be longer.
0: I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there sure are economists who will tell you so, but I'm pretty sure it would be the opposite direction. Or, or we, could, we
1: could impose, the state could impose, uh, uh, could forbid cheesecakes, for example, for everyone.
0: Yeah, well, now we're talking. You know, this is this is yeah. how you would win me if you wanted to convince me of becoming a statist. Like, it's it's it, this is I think the the ultimately you're you're absolutely correct. You know, war is the health of the state, and so you'll notice that governments once they got the feeling of this is war, all the world's governments, all the world's prime ministers, perked up. You know, the, 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 they sense the opportunity. All their life, they're waiting for you know their life to be a little bit more consequential then where did you put this little amount of money in education or healthcare? Now they're leading the war. Now they get to be uh, the, the ones who need to carry the nation through the struggle. So of course they loved it. And, and, and sacrifice becomes, you know, stay home and sacrifice becomes all of these things that the government asks of you. Somehow nobody's asking you to sacrifice cheesecake. You know, nobody's asking you to sacrifice for your health nobody's asking you to actually think about the sacrifices that can make a difference which is what would happen if it wasn't war if it was every man for himself if we had health anarchy this was the thought experiment that we started with today you know how would an uh, anarchy uh, a world of anarchy a world where you know there's no world health organization imagine and no public health organizations in in a, in that kind of world people would have to carry out their own risk assessments And the risk assessments, uh, I I am confident without a doubt, you know, for the same reason that uh, cars are made better in, in, were made better in Western Germany than in Eastern Germany. There's absolutely no question that if you allowed a free market in determining what we do with our health, people would figure it out. You know, people who come up with bad ideas, whatever those bad ideas are, bad drugs or um, bad uh, rituals, Maybe if sauna works or vodka or masks or uh, COVID or hydroxy- COVID vaccine, or hydroxychloroquine, all of those things, you know, in a free market, anybody can try and, um, you know, uh, people don't have to learn. If they don't learn the right lesson, they are weeded out of the gene pool. Um, and and but in that kind of world, people would learn much more quickly. People would very quickly adopt what works because they'd see evidence for it working and um, the, the, they would have personal responsibility in it, but we don't have that, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, important here is also the uh, living standards for, for life expectancy. You know? If you look on the historical data, the life expectancy for rich people within one country, but also between countries, yeah, richer countries, their life expectancy is longer. If we compare, for example, in 1989, West Germany with East Germany, Western Germans uh, lived at a three year, three year longer life expectancy than East Germans. Yeah. So what we are doing now, we are instituting uh, health socialism worldwide, reducing t- t- tremendously living standards, yeah, uh, in-, in introducing poverty into the world, where it had been eradicated. And this means that you know, life expectancy will fall. There will be, ma- maybe for everyone, one, ma- one once, uh, months of life expectancy has been reduced due, t- due to this. Yeah, of healthy people, of people who are 20 or 30 years old. Yeah, their life expectancy due to the reduction of worldwide uh, living standards has fallen one month. Yeah, And at the same time, the average death age of COVID in Germany is 84 years. Yeah, so which is actually higher than the life expectancy uh, of people. So, so the average death of of COVID in Germany is at an age higher than average life expectancy.
0: So, um, yeah, it's absolutely and, insane when you think about it. And you think, of, you know, um, even further for the children. You know, my kids, uh, they suffered from a stuffy nose for two days. That was the extent of it, and really, you know, I I blame 7.8 billion people for not staying home. If all of you had just stayed home, then my kids wouldn't have suffered this and I wouldn't have been sick for a few days and life would have been much better. Um, it, it, it's insane to think about it that these kids, you know, young kids are not getting a normal life, which is, it's, it's a scary thought experiment to think about it, that All of the world's seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds have spent the last year essentially um, stuck to TV screens eating junk food, almost not all of them junk food, maybe, hopefully, but dealing with screens rather than dealing with actual children, with other children, which is, we've never had anything like this. Like, I mean, if it's, it's something that if if you did it to one child in a town you know i think you would notice a very big difference between their development and their, their peers you know if you made a 7 year old spend a year at school uh, at home um where they didn't get to play with any kids for a whole year i think it would make a difference in their development most likely it would be a serious impediment to their normal development and growth and it has, it has been a struggle for children all over the world and it's been a struggle for parents to get their children to play with other children and if you look at the risk for children it's a study has been done and children are more at risk from dying from being hit by lightning than they are from dying from the coronavirus and this is, the numbers have been run and very very few children there are billions of children in the world and there are very 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 few of them that has died from this and even the ones that died from this were almost certainly children dying from other causes who just happened to test positive but the notion of this being a serious risk for children is, is absolutely absurd and yet these are the people who are going these are the only people who are going to be around 60 70 80 90 years from now and they're the ones that are going to live longest of all the people that are around and it's absolutely unconscionable for me how this is taking place we're sacrificing the normal development of children and we're just saying that all of their lives all of their normal lives everything about their childhood needs to be sacrificed all of their development for the rest of their life needs to be sacrificed for an illness that primarily endangers people that are have a low life expectancy either through long age through age or through um just being in extremely bad health it's it's absolutely amazing um, as opposed to you know let the children live their lives normally and um, have the people that are at risk isolate
1: yeah it's like the old old politicians are sacrificing the future of the of 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 our children yeah how selfish is this yeah i, can, I cannot imagine something more selfish to lock up children because uh, you think that therefore you, you can have a get a better chance to to survive yeah and it's you, it's, it's, it's
0: absolutely heroic philip it, t- it takes a lot of courage and leadership to choose to sacrifice other people's children
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, and you frighten them. That is, uh, you frighten them and you make them obedient also. As I said, the fear makes people more obedient. They have to wear the mask and they are told to in school and stand in lines if they can go to school and politicians stop them in the street when they see them or at least the, we were stopped for example i with my children were stopped in the street uh, by policemen who told us oh, we are not allowed to go out <laughs> with children <laughs> only with the dog but not with children
0: um oh, wow, so I mean.
1: a, yeah and so 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 next day I thought, well, we go again with the dog. We again go out again. But they said no, we don't want it. Why did they not want? Because they were afraid of the police. It stopped them once and then they were yeah, they were they were afraid to go to the street again. You know, we had a harsh, hard lockdown in, in Madrid and we are not we were not allowed to go only to groceries, so we could not go for a walk. Uh, with children, with dogs, yes, but not with children. <laughs> so uh so yeah we don't know what will be the long this traumatic experiences. What will be the long-term consequences? And not only for children, I think there will be a case for <laughs> psychological assistance for for many, many people. because one problem we have here is in Spain, for example, that people are too afraid to let their children play with our children, for example, yeah, they are too afraid they don't want to meet up. Uh, and I can tell you another story that I, during the lockdown, I went running even though, even though it was forbidden. And the second time, unfortunately, I was stopped by the police. Yeah, and wow. uh, yeah, and the police said, "Well, what are you doing?" I, t- I said, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm running. Don't you don't you see? I, I." I want to do something for my health. <laughs> and then, then he said, no, uh, you are not allowed to do that. Uh, and I said, I'm just uh, using my constitutional rights. And then he said, no, in, a, in, a, in an alarm state, uh, state of alarm, you're not allowed to, you don't have uh, basic rights. Yeah. Yeah, and then he he sent me home again, and I asked him. Then I can have I to go to go slowly back home, or can I run? And he said, oh, I don't care. just run home, and then I ran home. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so this was, and the other experience was when I run, when I was running down there. Uh, it's like 300 meters to go to the open field from our house, but in these 300 meters, there one there was a woman shouting up from the third floor to me, Sinvergüenza, which is like. Shameless! It's a really, it's, it's just like a, uh, yeah. It's an insult, a bad insult, actually. So this woman was actually thinking that because I was running on the street, one no one else was there. I was killing people. Yeah, and she, she was like screaming, Sh- "Shameless, sin uh, mewenza." Yeah. Um, so people got so yeah brainwashed and scared that they behave totally irrational, and, and if these people. What will their future be? Will they ever be able to live a normal life again? <laughs> this is the question. I think the psychological consequences of this will be will be enormous and and very tragic.
0: It's absolutely um, incredible, and um, people uh, people forget that we've had viruses, you know, all throughout history, and we've had uh, we've had these things happen, and they will happen again. And we've had illnesses, and we've had sicknesses, and this notion people seem to be treating this as if it's just going to change humanity and change human life, and it's it, it, it's it's absolutely insane. It's it's really the fear that is driving them to do this.
1: Yeah. Um, Saif, I have to leave you because my son is uh, finishing his soccer training right now. So so thank well, you very much. Can, I'm, I'm glad yeah. he can
0: play. I'm glad he can play. Hopefully they, they keep him uh, practicing before they cancel football entirely all over the planet.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. He has to wear a mask, which is totally ridiculous. But
0: Oh, wow, yeah. I've heard about that. Amazing. Okay,
1: so so thank you again uh, for All having right. join you and uh, enjoy, enjoy enjoy the day. Have a good day. Bye bye. Cheers.
0: thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Take care. Yeah, I was just
1: about to say the mask thing, but I thought no, that's that's too stupid. There's there's no way. <laughs> like as a joke.
0: <laughs> what is it?
1: I was about to say, or oh, does your kid have to wear a mask when he's playing playing football? But as a joke,
0: <laughs> no. They, they. I've heard of a lot of kids who have to wear masks in music class and sports class. It's absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. The insane thing about it is how we've shifted from any kind of rational risk assessment into just pure. Uh, hyper virtue signaling on everything. It's just, you know, mask the babies, mask them twice, mask them thrice. It doesn't matter whether they're at risk or anything. It's just it's it's amazing. It's 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 an incredible. Any other questions about anything related to this entire sad, sorry episode of humanity? This idea that now we need three masks or two masks, double masks, it's more efficient uh, you know saving. Doesn't, you know, if if COVID spreads is airborne um, and doesn't it not really matter if you use two or three because it can literally go all across your face, you know, your face may be covered uh, with the virus and is supposedly uh, putting even another third mask supposed to protect more? No, it doesn't. No. Uh, I said I don't see what's what's the uh, point. Yeah, I think I mean ultimately the sad thing is that if you can breathe, if you as long as the mask is not suffocating you to death, then it's not going to stop it. It's not going to stop anything. It's uh, if you're still breathing, if you can still breathe through it, then. It's 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 really psychological, and I think the only way that it would work is if it had a filter, or if it was it was completely locked off to the point of suffocation. But other than that, there's very little evidence to suggest that this works, um, except in terms of, um, except really in terms of, <laughs> just people want to believe that it works. I could, and, and, and if there is evidence, you know, it's it's clinical evidence that they collect in the lab, but that's very different from universal day-long masking. I think this is what people miss, that if you're using a mask where you're just walking around, particularly cloth masking, which is just insane, you're walking around with a damp cloth on your face and you're breathing from a damp cloth and you're just hampering your respiratory system. You're breathing in harder and dirty air and you're preventing your body from breathing out clean air it's just it's 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 massively massively inconveniencing uh your respiratory system it can't (laughs) it, it can't possibly be helping your respiratory system to just impede it like that and it's, you know, the, by any estimate, it's, it's, it's nowhere near enough to, uh, a, good, a good metaphor is throwing sand at a fence. Some of the sand will be stopped by the fence, but, you know, it's, it's not a very good defensive strategy from sand. But that doesn't matter. What matters is showing that you care and sacrificing. And people are losing their lives. And if you're not sacrificing, then, you know, you are to blame. I'd like to end this with what I think is probably the face of the hysteria for me. This man, I think, is the um, is really the best advertisement for what's wrong with the world. This guy, (laughs) Doug Ford, is the uh, is the premier of Ontario in Canada and Um, He has implemented, you know, Ontario, if you've been following, they have had some of the most incredible uh, strict lockdowns and uh, business shutdowns. And um, uh, basically Canada has, uh, in Ontario, businesses have been decimated, particularly small businesses. And this guy has been very uh, relentless about uh, just being the exact Image of the person that we were talking about. You know, the person who's who sees the opportunity of this of this crisis and uh, really um, seizes it. Like you know, people in power get this feeling of we're at war, and all of their worst instincts are activated. And this guy has uh, really savored this in in the last year, and he did this <laughs> while telling people to stay home. And as you see in the video that I'm playing right now. He's wearing a t-shirt that says, we're all in this together. And he's, of course, massively obese himself. And he's teaching people what to do during the lockdown because, you know, you're at home and you're bored. And his idea of a good thing to do is to cook cheesecake. And there he is sitting, uh, standing in his kitchen, being filmed, cooking cheesecake with buckets and buckets of sugar uh, being added to it. And this is his idea of how he's keeping Ontario healthy. He's locking people at home and telling them to eat cheesecake while he destroys their business, and um, he's doing it shamelessly. There he is. He's cooking the cheesecake and he's giving people the recipe. This is this is what it means to have public health. This is for me the poster child of the economic health calculation problem. It's 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 just completely separating the decision from the consequences as you see you know he's uh, he's laying into the cheesecake himself and he really shouldn't he's at serious risk he should be uh, working out he should be eating steak he shouldn't be eating cheesecake and he should definitely not be telling his constituents to be eating cheesecake but here we are this is <laughs> this is this is i think the, the the best example of um health central planning You get to the point where you have somebody who is extremely unhealthy and clearly at very high risk telling people to stay home, to not move, to not work out and banning them from doing this and arresting them for working, arresting them for leaving home, arresting them for, uh, you know, even they locked down beaches and gyms and all places where people go to get healthy. All of that is shut down, but you can cook your cheesecake and he'll, help guide you through the cooking of the cheesecake. I think this is this is really what you get when you get central planning. In, your, in, in, in people's minds, it's like with central planning, you, you can think about it as central planning is just this nice, beautiful thing where we have the doctors in charge and the doctors tell us what's good, but really you just end up with a bunch of corrupt politicians um, making the most out of it while they can. And you end up with... People telling you to cook cheesecake and stay home and hide from the sun all day and not move as a health mechanism, as a health health strategy. That's, I think, um, just mises. That's just the calculation problem. It, it's very fruitful to think about health issues from this from this regard, where it's not about whether the thing works or whether the thing is effective. It's about whether it's good for the people that are. Um, in power. That's really what it comes down to. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining. This has been a lot of fun and uh, I will see you next week. Take care.